Hello and welcome back to Control or Delete. My guest today is Jen Romolini. She's an award-winning editor, writer, speaker and thinker on the topic of modern work. Her 2017 book, Weird in a World That's Not, a career guide for misfits, fuck-ups and failures, was named one of the best leadership books of the year by Fast Company. And I really loved it when it came out. It's a really refreshing read about how you can be your weird and wonderful self and also be good at your job. She has had a really interesting career. She was the former chief content officer of Shondaland, a digital content site created by producer Shonda Rhimes. She was also the vice president of content for Zoe Deschanel's Hello Giggles website and the deputy editor of Lucky Magazine. Her recent work has appeared in the New York Times, Audible for Business and Elle and many others. I really love her writing. She's very honest and open and vulnerable in her words and is also always full of really good advice. Her recent appearance on the Everything is Fine podcast was named one of Spotify's Best of the Week. And excitingly, she's also the new co-host of the show. I really recommend listening. It's one of my favorite podcasts at the moment. It's a really honest, reflective and entertaining podcast for women over 40. They talk about aging, about careers, life changes. And yeah, I love listening to it. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please just go and leave a little review. It's always really helpful. And here is the conversation with Jen. I'm so happy to be joined by Jen, who I have wanted to interview for so long. So thank you for letting me pin you down. (laughs) This is such a pleasure. And I equally, we've been in a mutual admiration society. I've been following you as well. So happy to be here. I wanted to start off just by asking you um, about your first book, because I read it when it came out. I felt like in this world of TED Talks and Girl Bosses and Business Women, your book was so needed. Was there a particular time or a particular moment that made you want to write it? Yes, actually. I was um, I was a boss at Hello Giggles. I was the vice president of content editor-in-chief. It was a website um, for young women and um, or young people, let's say. Let's be more inclusive. Um, it was run by Zoe Deschanel and the actress... And, you know, people really loved it. And we had a lot of young, young and by young, I mean, women, you know, in their very early 20s. And equally, we had a lot of young staff. So our staff, I was realizing had really no idea how to be in the working world. You know, they'd come in and they'd send me. um, I remember I had this one employee who someone was trying to poach her on LinkedIn. And I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell again because it's the funniest thing. Someone's trying to poach her on LinkedIn and she comes into my office with her laptop and says, look, have you seen this? This somebody?" And I said, you know, I can't see that, right? And she, you know, she was so paranoid that someone was trying to poach her, but she also had no idea how to respond and she didn't know how to write an email and none of them knew how to write an email. And I could just see like people being their organic selves because I was a very, um, I was a very nurturing boss and I allowed people to sort of let their freak freak flags fly. And, but I was like, oh, you guys don't know how to be in the world of business. And what I was seeing was that they didn't want to be super confident and like stomp in the room, like all the guides were telling them to. And that was making these women, as it had made me feel like I was not going to be able to be a part of the business world unless I looked a certain way and behaved a certain way. And I wanted to write a book 
that acknowledged that and also showed people you can work in the world in a different way. You don't have to be polished and poised and perfect. And you don't need to be a bad bitch if you're not a bad bitch, which I am not a bad bitch. And I am not a badass and I'm none of those things. And I don't feel particularly confident all of the time. I don't feel like that's a sustaining part of my personality. And I felt like the messaging that was going out was that that was the only way to be and that was the way to succeed. And equally, what I realize now, um, what I didn't realize at the time was I was teaching people how to work in a dysfunctional world of working because I had learned to adapt And I don't necessarily think that, I think that book is dated now because I don't actually think that we should even conform to the working world. I think the working world needs to conform to us. I think in a lot of ways that book was a bit of a trauma brain um, and I wanted to help others like trauma bonding. I wanted to help others sort of move through what was often a really painful, harsh, and like I said, dysfunctional uh, working world. So interesting you say that because I wouldn't say it's dated, but I definitely think you were ahead of the time in terms of talking about this stuff because I feel like everyone now is talking about how to be your authentic self, which I know is slightly different from like being your weird self. I love that in part one, you say find your weird, but it's almost like this is such a discussion we still need to be having between how do you be professional and how do you still be yourself? And like, where's the line? Because I know me and you, like still fire off all sorts of tweets and we love to connect, but it's like, where's the line on work and, and personal life? Maybe there doesn't need to be one. I mean, I think it depends on what you do, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it depends on the kind of career you're in. And what's difficult is when creatives are in corporate environments, right? So if you're, I mean, and I guess this could work for any career, but if I I would imagine if you are a lawyer and you, or you are a doctor and you went to school and you learn a very specific type of skill and there are all sorts of rules to that skill, right? And there are a lot of boundaries built into that work. Um, possibly law more than medical, I would even say to, to some degree, you know, my lawyer, for example, I wouldn't want my lawyer to behave in a room the way I behave, you know? <laughs> but we have two different roles in the world. Um, but I don't know because I don't like being professional because professional implies performance and I'm not interested in performing an identity. And I don't think that I'm not professional in that I am respectful. I am, I'm, I'm reliable. I meet, you know, I meet all of my deadlines. I perform at a high level. And if that, that's the level of professionalism I'm willing to, to bring to work. I'm not willing to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to follow all of your draconian rules. I'm going to, you know, do mindless work. I'm going to feed your ego. You know, these things are are also expected of us in professional situations. All these rules around how you were supposed to treat a boss, you know, stay until stay until the boss leaves and, you know, no work-life balance if you're if you're coming up, if you're junior, you know, all of that, that's not professional. Often that's abuse. Right. 
totally, totally. And um, I guess it's it's something I've been thinking about for so long as well. Like, how do we be ourselves and be the the messy human part in a in a world that wants us to be machines, basically? And they're like, they would prefer it if we just switched ourselves on and off and had no life and had no personality. That would be great for capitalism, but actually, we're not trained to be like that. We're people, and. Um, and I wanted to ask you actually about your career journey a little bit, because there was that amazing episode on Everything is Fine, which obviously you're a host of now, but it's like the most amazing episode about how you basically say that you switched this idea in your head that like everything has to be outwardly validating. And actually, as long as we're making money and we're happy, like who actually cares what everyone else thinks? Would you be able to talk a bit about how it feels like you, it sounded like you had a light bulb moment as well. Yeah, I mean, in what we were talking about before, this sort of girl boss industrial complex, one of the outcomes of that, and I think this is also, even though I'm Gen X, I think this is a very millennial idea um, that you just have to keep going. You have to keep succeeding. You have to reach the top. There's a top prize and you need to keep moving toward it and you need to take what's yours and a seat at the table and all of these ideas. And it's a very, very competitive and aggressive way of approaching work. And what happened to me for a number of reasons was I needed to, I was sort of channeling trauma through work and I needed work to validate me. Work, I had wrapped up my identity really in work and I needed to be successful. I needed to be successful on the outside. It was a very protective measure for me. It was just, it was, I wasn't really dealing with myself and instead I just sort of put this, uh, code of success paint over myself, right? Mm. And what happened was I kept going and kept going, even when I didn't want to any anymore, even when I thought, you know, well, I kind of, I feel like I've been successful enough, you know, even when I was making enough money, I kept getting offered jobs because I was, I'm good at what I do. And I got offered a, a big job that I didn't want. Um, and then I took anyway, because it really looked good to the outside world. And, you know, I was, I was publishing a book and my agent was like, oh, well, that will look really good. And everyone in my family said, you know, oh my God, that job. And my husband was like, you can't turn that down and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I was finished doing that kind of work. I was running another website and I was finished doing that kind of work. And I kind of knew it. I just, I just finished this book, but it had my first book, but it hadn't come out yet. And I just felt like it was not the right job for me. And I took it anyway. And I think that one of the key indicators of whether we are going to be fulfilled in our lives or not, and, and, and be okay in some ways, is if we can fully and honestly commit to something. And so we need to be careful about what we're committing to. I mean, and that's relational too, right? But we really need to be intentional. Is this something I want to take on? Me, personally, where I am right now in this moment, not what the outside world is telling me anything. So I took this job, but I, I could never really fully commit to it. And every the, it was one of those jobs where people were like, whoa, you know, and everybody, I was adjacent to fame and power. And so people wanted to really know me and be close to me and, and see what I could do for them. So that started happening too, which was really not a side effect that I was interested in. Um, And I wound up getting fired from that job. 
um, for a number of reasons. And it, that was when there was like a thunderclap for me because I had reached the, the top of my career, the pinnacle. I had reached total external success and I was very, very unhappy. And after that, I sorted out how to make work work for me, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And that required being willing to make some concessions and the concessions, which were okay for me were jobs that were interesting, but didn't have amazing titles. I, I, I took many like both projects and full-time jobs that were junior to my level in the world, or at least they were by title, but by being junior a little bit, that meant there was less time needed for me to be at the job. I wasn't always the boss, which meant I did, which mean there was less pressure. So I did that, you know, and also I started making less money and it was okay. I was, I am the breadwinner of my family. It's not like we are rich, but I recognized what my priorities were. And at the time, my priority was I want to spend more time with my family. I want to do work that's more creative. And if I can't be doing directly work that's more creative, I want to be. If I can't directly be doing work that's more creative, I want to have um, time to do creative work. So so that so that's how I balance my life now. And I want to spend more time with my child who is growing up and this is one time I have to be a part, to be present in their lives. And I didn't want to miss that. So my prayer changed. God, that was a long answer. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, that is such a great answer. And also it's kind of getting me quite excited for your next book because I know that by the title, I don't know what's in it, obviously, but (laughs) it seems like you're going to unpack a lot of that and how we do hide a lot of our trauma and our pain within work and within validation from others. And it's kind of crazy how much we, and I think Brené Brown has said something about this, but how much we just want the love and attention of strangers over and above the people closest to us, which is so bizarre sometimes when you think about that. And cause that's all really what a LinkedIn profile is, is like people you'll never meet thinking you're cool. It's like, it's not really a great way to live necessarily. Um, oh, and not only that, people you'll ne- you'll never meet thinking you're cool from like an avatar, and you're looking at an avatar of them. And I think that even extends into I think that even extends into real life, into networking. You know, you're just out there in the world performing, and then it's just like, well, what are we even doing here? Is this how we want to spend this life? This 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 is how we want to do it? Performing an identity. You know, mm-hmm. and I see people, you know, people I know or, or, you know, have orbited for a while. I see their fluffed up resumes on LinkedIn. I see them turning one experience into another kind of experience. I see them exaggerating their skills. And I just think, especially when you're a person in your 40s and you're getting older, I mean, it's any time, but especially as you're older, I just always look at it and I think, don't you feel too old for this? Don't, don't you feel... Don't you don't feel sad for yourself that this is what you're doing? What is this? What are you looking for? What is this striving? What where what do you think you're going to find at the end of this if you're at the end of this journey if you're traveling in this way? We've become so corny and embarrassing, you know? Mm, Yes. 
Completely. And before I ask you about your podcast, which I feel like is the epitome of, you know, seeing people for who they really are and being so honest with, with that success thing, do you feel like, I feel like a lot of people, when they reach the top of the ladder, they suddenly get it and they're like, oh, right, this is all complete BS. Do you think like we need to get to that next level where like you don't need to even get to the top of the ladder to realize? Because I, it's kind of my journey too. Like I've got all the shiny, I got the shiny things I wanted and then I realized, oh wait, it's not what I thought, but it would be nice to get there before then, if that makes sense. Yes. I mean, let's say that that these are positions of incredible privilege and, you know, I just, I just always want to put that out there and I'm not talking about there's different kinds of work. I'm not talking about survival work, right? There's sometimes you are working to survive and that for whatever reason, you're working to survive financially, you are working to survive, you know, sort of your mental health. Like some people just need to be on the churn and I get that, right? I do think that if you are in a position where you are able to examine what you're actually striving for, instead of waiting to get to the end and say, wait, is that all there is? This is the prize mm-hmm. that, you know, this dealing with these, these, these terrible people and their egos and, and, you know, and we, you know, we exalt success and we also fame and they're both hideous. And if we could know that earlier, it would be great. But again, this is life, right? We romanticize all kinds of things until we get there. I think there is a thing that they ha- we have to have learned experiences. So I don't know. Yes, it would be nice to get there earlier, but I don't know if it's human nature to actually do it. Mm, I know exactly what you mean. It's like you want to be invited to the party and then you want to say no. Yeah, you just you want to know that it was your choice not to, and there's something something in that. But um, but yeah, I'm I love your podcast so much. Do do you and Kim France, who you host it with, do you feel? I I can imagine you feel good when you post those episodes because you really are being very honest, and it's not like you're talking about taboo subjects necessarily at all. But I feel like I'm hearing things I'm not hearing elsewhere. And it's kind of addictive. Like, I want to know what you both really think about stuff. And I absolutely love it. Oh, that's amazing. And thank you for saying that. Um, we don't really know what we're doing, which I think is part of the, the joy of it. Um, so Kim was my boss for a long time at Lucky Magazine, and we had a very different relationship then. And what I think we've come to realize in the years since, and particularly working together on this podcast, was that that dynamic really, her her as my boss and me as her employee, really stunted our friendship. We were meant to really know each other and be really close. And in those roles of boss and employee, you have to have boundaries, right? And you also have to, particularly back then at Condé Nast, this was at Lucky Magazine, you know, when magazines still mattered, particularly at that time, you were you were pretending to be a thing. And there were lots of rules around work. And we couldn't be our true selves with each other because it would have been inappropriate. It would have been inappropriate for me to know how much she was fucking off. Oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Again. Okay. How much she was fucking off. And it would have been way inappropriate for her to know how much I was fucking off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so 
we, we, but we were friends. Like we were drawn to each other, even in that, you know, I was the employee who would go into her office bathroom with her and smoke cigarettes, you know, even though later she would have to be like the boss with me in a meeting. We loved each other. Right. (laughs) Now the fact that all these years later, we get to like 10 years later, we get to talk to each other as much as we talk to each other and work on a creative project together and have that chemistry again, because we had really good chemistry. That's a, that's something you just can't, you can't teach, you can't buy, you can't replicate. You just have creative energy together. You don't. So anyways, I, I think that that's why it's working because we don't even have to, it's not even that hard to be honest. We don't even yeah. really, our episodes were just like hi mm, that's <laughs> why it's so good and we just have yeah. a conversation and we're also both at an age where we don't really care what people think so much and we also know to be responsible and careful and thoughtful and I think we're both thoughtfully honest and we're thoughtfully honest in our friendship um, but we don't really care what people think about our honest selves which is incredibly liberating Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's so great how you celebrate the amazing things about getting older. You know, like I can't wait. I think being, I think forties is like the really cool decade that I'm actually really looking forward to. But you also don't sugarcoat the hard bits and the grief and and pain of losing what society clings onto so much, which is youth, which none of us will have forever. But it's just very eye opening to. I think you're podcast is kind of bridging that gap I think between well it's kind of for like a lot of millennials probably too who are listening in because we're going to learn more from you than we will from just everyone talking about the same stuff all the time I mean that's that's the hope the hope is that we are talking about things and demystifying a lot of the aging process and illuminating some things that nobody wants to talk about because we're all afraid to talk about aging because we're afraid to admit that we're aging because even though we're obviously getting older, I feel like I see people and, you know, obviously with how much we change our faces and how, you know, I see people fighting it and wanting to appear youthful. And I think that eventually, you know, the jig is up, right? So that's first, like you can't hide it forever, but it's, again, that goes back to the corniness thing. Like, it's just so corny. It's embarrassing. Like we're Kim is 57 and I'm 48. I don't want to pretend that I'm 38. I went into like a Hollywood agent's office a couple of years ago and you know, we were talking about getting my book optioned and I was talking about how long I knew someone. And I said, oh, my God, I've known that person for you know 15 years. And the agent said, whoa, whoa, don't say things like that. Don't say things like that. You know, not don't say that in the room. And I said, I don't care that I was whatever, 45, 44, whatever I was at the time. It's like, I don't care. And if this person cares, I don't want to work with them. Yeah. And yeah. Was, <laughs> this was not OK with this agent. I will say that. <laughs> and this agent is no longer my agent because of that. But. I don't want to pretend, especially on that. You know, I'll pretend I'm more enthusiastic about something than I am. <laughs> you know, I'll I'll pretend I like or respect someone's opinion if it's going to, you know, if it's going to be better for me in a situation. Sometimes, you know, if you're like, oh yeah, that's an interesting note, you know, <laughs> fine. But I don't want to pretend I'm a different thing than I am, especially if I'm 
making a creative product because then I'm just perpetuating all of the things I hate. Well, this is what's so sort of, I want to say brave, but it shouldn't be brave to literally be yourself. But I think what's scary for some people is essentially what you're doing is you are attracting the right people for you because they have to fully be on board. But it was interesting what you were saying about that sort of rejection period you went through with your second proposal and how you actually ended up finding the most perfect home for it in the end. But some people don't want to go through that period of time where they're potentially up for rejection or going to be rejected for being themselves. Right. Right. I mean, well, but that's, that's what you have to go through. I mean, that's sort of part of the hustle, right? Like that's, that's the good hustle. The good hustle is believing in yourself and being resilient and being persistent. That's the good hustle. The bad hustle is when we get into a situation where, you know, we're hustling for somebody else we're hustling for a title, we're hustling for ego, like hustling to push the boulder up the mountain for something you believe in and something you know you want. I think that actually is really rewarding, or at least that's been my experience, right? Because we can get into a situation where we're spinning or we're pushing. And I think that getting right with the intention and the in this case, the intention was I got very clear with myself that I wanted to write another book. And I knew that that was what I wanted to do next. And if the world was going to let me, that's what I really wanted. And so I needed to keep going with that because I couldn't. There's one thing about being your authentic self and then also expecting the world to come to you, which I don't expect. I don't live in the world thinking, oh, I deserve I deserve to get opportunities because I think that nobody does. I think that, you know, you, you keep putting your work out there. It's a competitive and harsh world. And if you really want something, you keep going for it. And I still believe that I really that's that's not a thing that's changed in my belief about work and careers. I do believe persistence is important. I think that a balance of time is important too. I don't think that you should be throwing yourself at something at time and you know what you're doing in your life, you know, you need to be balanced. I don't think you should be throwing yourself all into work, you know, 24/7 because I don't think that that's healthy and I think that that becomes compulsive and then you have workaholism is an addiction just like anything else. Yeah. But it was really great how you shared that story of how long it took for this second book to find its right home because I think as well maybe that is something to do with the jig being up and you being older and wiser that when you're in your 20s sometimes you can't tell anyone about the rejections because you're still in that performance mode and how freeing to be like I don't care (laughs) like this is the truth oh right I guess you know what I realize what you're saying I've totally shed that I'm as you get older. See, here's the myth about getting older. People say that you care less about things. Oh, I give less of a fuck. Oh, that's what's so liberating about it. And that's not true. I care totally. Right. But I'm less triggered by things because I know myself better. So the thing is, I'm less triggered. I'm less ashamed. Right. That's really what this is about. It's not that I care less. I care a ton, but I'm less ashamed. I, I love myself more. I know myself better. So the rejection doesn't make me feel ashamed. The rejection was like, oh man, that didn't work. 
oh, I see what's going on in the business. Oh, I see why I am not palatable to that editor. Oh, I see how my platform isn't big enough. Oh, guess what? I don't really want to grow my platform. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to accept what comes with not doing that. Right. So it's not, it's, it's, it's not bravery. It's that I am, I, I care about myself more. Mm -hmm. I know myself better. And if I am triggered by shame, I can see it in real time in a way I couldn't before. When I was younger, somebody would say something or I would be rejected and that rejection felt so big and it was so intolerable and it hurt me so much. But that's not how I am. Yeah. But that I love that because I think what a great place to get to and hopefully what a, a place everyone can get to at some point, hopefully, because like you say, if you see someone so entrenched in the shame of a work rejection or something, then there's like a sympathy or an empathy there for that person. Cause they, they're wrapped up in that. And actually to see that from afar and say, Oh, it doesn't affect me as much. So that's a lot of growth that's happened. Yeah. I mean, look, it regret, it, it, it affected me as it was happening. Like, of course it did. And of course I went through self-doubt. And of course, especially because, but I think you go through this at any age. So let's just make this universal. I really felt like, oh, nobody's ever going to want me again. This isn't, I'm not, I'm not right. I did spiral into those feelings of maybe my career is over. Maybe, maybe nobody wants my work. And I had to work through all of that negative self-talk. Right. I mean, not to get real therapy, but I had to I really had to work through it in in therapy. And I had to talk about why am I still talking to myself like this? I had to stop, but I'm not ashamed. And maybe I'm not ashamed of the rejection because I actually think it was so great. It helped me so much. The rejection was a gift. It was a gift that I was able to examine and look at how it made me feel and then move on from it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm really on that sort of, um, path at the moment with the self-compassion because yeah. I've got like a big project that I'm meant to be doing at the moment that I've struggled with. And it was all, I don't know if it's a getting older thing, but it's like the voice in my head is getting like more and more maternal <laughs> and yeah. it's like getting more and more sort of like motherly almost and kind. And I'm like, Oh, that life is so much nicer this way. Yeah. And not blaming yourself, not, not always just finding ways to abuse yourself. You know, it's, uh, I, that was what work was for me. It was really a masochism. How much can I take? How hard can I work? I worked constantly for so long and it's just unacceptable to me. That's an intolerable amount of work to me. I don't care about whatever reward is on the other side. I can't abandon myself anymore. Yeah. If you're working so much, you can't process the things we're talking about. And I think it is tricky, though, if you're a creative person who loves their, their work, but you, nothing that you love should ever trap you like that. So it's like you can say, like, oh, I love writing, so I want to write 24-7. But even that is still not not great, I don't think. 
Well, I don't know. So if you're really in a project, right, and you're like, whoa, I just want, I really want to think about it all the time. And sometimes I think you get this, get to this place with books, or at least I have. And my husband is a writer and in the pandemic, he's written two books. And so he's just been in these two, two books for, you know, months and months. And I see him, he's not really present, but he's in his creative work, right? And I get that. Sometimes that happens and sometimes that kind of obsession well, I don't know if it's healthier. I don't know if it's healthy or not. It can be very rewarding to be in a creative project and be so immersed, right? What I'm talking about is I have taken work out of fear and out of scarcity. I have taken things, and that goes back to what I was saying about fully committing to something, full buy-in. Is this something I really want to be spending my time on? Am I engaged with this project? Does this light me up? I mean, that's how you really want it to be. can't always be that way. I still take things for money that I just have to do, but I look at them more carefully, right? You know, what, what's the time? What's the time investment versus the money? You know, how, what's this going to look like in terms of like the external stress? How many people am I going to have to to talk to about this how many of those people are going to be assholes you know i really examine those like yes. jobs, jobs for money in a much better way i vet them much better but i've done in the past i've taken jobs and i've taken projects out of fear like oh my god well what if i run out of money oh i can't turn this down i can't i can't do this you know i have to i have to take this on because what if nobody calls me again right that's how we get ourselves into trouble because there's a lot that's, it, there's actually not scarcity. I know that the job market can be tight, especially for a writer or a creative, but there's other work out there. There's going to be another, there's going to be another mediocre project, let's say, right? There's going to be another, not your dream project. Okay. There's a lot of those out there. And the next one may suit you better than this one that's making you go ah oh. <laughs> yes yes and that scarcity thing I often wonder if it is like a gendered like patriarchy thing where women especially feel like oh everyone's going to get it and I won't and I've got to keep going and that is so such good advice and that feeling of if you get an opportunity that comes in and I know this sounds like maybe a bit woo woo that someone wouldn't do it but just like sitting and like feeling in your body whether it's a yes or a no fully and then going for it I found that really useful because sometimes your body is like no (laughs) no I mean panicky you can feel the anxiety you're in the interview and it doesn't feel right right and this is this is in a perfect world obviously when we're talking about being young and building our careers sometimes especially when you're younger I do think that the bad experiences do have a lot to teach us, right? Sometimes you you take, like, I don't think you should beat yourself up if you take, it's, it's learning from these bad experiences, right? Sometimes you just need money and you just have to take the job. And then you may get a lot of learning from that. Or sometimes you don't even need the money. You need a specific experience, right? And that's worth it to you. So sometimes there's value in the terrible experience. I, I hope I'm making sense right now. It does, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there are all these distinctions in how we choose what we're going to do. And even what I'm saying right now is that we have more power than we think. We yeah. get to choose. It's so true. And I guess what you're talking about is like you're in, you're going in with with an intention. It's like, you know why you're doing it. And 
I actually have this newsletter going out soon that's on this topic of like emotional currency and how like we all have an exchange, like we all have like a value exchange going on. So if the money is really great, but it will make you a bit depressed. But if you're doing something for charity and you're not getting paid, but you feel great and you feel like you've done something, that's a great exchange. It's like, yeah, it is thinking of those formulations, right? That's definitely part of it. I turned down a project um, in the last couple of weeks and this was a moment where I was like, oh, the therapy's working, right? <laughs> like I, I right now I'm about to, or I'm in the middle of in the start of writing my second book. And, you know, I don't know how everybody knows how books work, but you get a certain amount of money to start it. And then you get a certain amount of money when you finish it. And then you get a certain amount of money when it comes out. And the money you get, depending on your deal, is enough to live on or not enough to live on. But it's, you know, it's not usually like a huge amount of money. It's not certainly not fuck you money. So, so why I'm saying all of this is because I could certainly use a little money right now, but I got offered a project to ghost write another book, which is a really grueling and intimate process. And if you don't love the source material, it is, <laughs> I, I can't even think of the adjective. If you don't love the source material and you're like carrying this baby for nine months and then you birth a, a thing that you don't even like that much, it is really demoralizing, okay? but it can be quite lucrative. So I got offered, a project came to me, it was going to be lucrative. It was not aligned with anywhere that I am right now. And I really, I, I wanted to say no wholesale as soon as I saw the email come in. But still my brain was like, well, I should see, I should see, you know, maybe. Mm -hmm. So anyway, yeah. I, yeah. I, I bit more and then I said no. And it felt so good to say no, even though, the money would have helped. I would have taken away from the project I really love. And so I make a couple financial sacrifices while I'm writing this book. That's worth it to me. And that's the exchange that's worth it. Right? Yeah. yeah. That was that was the math I had to do there. Right? It's emotional math. That's what it is. Thank you for sharing that. It's such a good, good example. It's so, so true. And I think, yeah, there's a lot to think about, like with, with our daily choices, because our daily choices basically are our whole life, our whole entire life. <laughs> um, but thank you so much. I could talk to you for hours. Um, oh, my God. last question, <laughs> it's flown by. My last question is um, just because I have so many writers and authors who listen into this. Is there anything you learned from the publication of your last book that you might not do with the next one or things you might change just in terms of the, the whole thing, like promotion or anything is, is there anything you're thinking about that you want to do differently? Yes. I've been thinking about this quite a bit. Um, so the first part of the, the process, you feel very in control when you have a book to some degree, because it's you, the books alone with you, right? You're writing it. It's just yours. You are controlling how you pace writing it and everything else. You control how you write it. What I very much felt like with my first book was I, I handed again another baby analogy, but I handed the baby over and they were like, we don't know what to do with this. And so even when I chose my publisher this time, I had a really difficult time the first time in marketing. I didn't, I was with a business press. They were really great people, but I don't think they knew what to do with me or my work. Um, they didn't know what to do. They were used to publishing 
a very different kind of author. And that was a very different kind of experience that those authors needed, right? What I needed was somebody to be much, you know, more out of the box and creative and weird as my book was. And I didn't have that. And we had, you know, from the jump with covers, we were, we were looking at covers and they were thinking a very different direction than I was thinking. And that was when I began to see that things were sort of spiraling marketing. We couldn't get on the same page. Who's this book for? How should we be marketing? So when I was selling this second book, and I did have a choice between two different editors and two different publishing houses. I was very careful in the questions I asked about what, how do you publish a book? How do you think about, and another thing was my, my first book didn't have a lot of time with the galleys, which the reader copies. So people could really read my book. There was a very short time between when the galleys came out and when it was published. So there wasn't a lot of time for people to look at it. And so all kinds of things that I learned. And I learned that like, if you're writing a book that's more creative and not prescriptive, which my book was a hybrid, the first one, you want people to have more time with it. Uh, a how-to guide, traditionally, they don't they don't usually give that much time because it's not about the read and it's not about somebody getting to know the work as much, right? Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot in the process between publishing two. And when I went into this book, I had the choice between two editors and I asked a lot of questions about how do you publish a book? How do you market a book? How do you, how do you see me? as an author, because I was doing a lot of publicity for that first book. I did a lot of publicity for it. And thank God, I mean, I'm very grateful for that. But it was a lot of publicity that I felt uncomfortable with, where I had to be, you know, I was doing like business shows, and I didn't feel like my audience was in business shows. And I didn't feel like I was doing that great, like in the business show, you know, (laughs) like as a guest on the business show. So I really wanted to find somebody who I felt was really aligned with me and my work and who I am as an author. Um, And again, that's a place of incredible privilege, but I had a choice between two. And let me say, if both of them had answered wrong, I'd probably still gone with one of them because I wanted to write a book, you know, but I was at least asking the questions. I was at least setting myself up to feel more empowered. Yes. Oh, that's so useful. So useful. And I think for anyone that's going to go into that process in the future or, or doing it now, so important to check you're on the right page and find a team that really believes in you as a, as a person who you really are. At least we should be trying. We're so afraid to try, right? Yeah. Well, I, I just, you know, I just remember being so grateful (laughs) which I think is a whole other episode on like the gratitude of, of just being a woman or anyone, but um, you know, yeah. you don't have to be grateful all the time, basically. No, no, you don't, you don't have to feel like, Oh my God, just happy to be here. <laughs> you can feel yeah. like I would like this. I would like this to serve some of my needs too. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Oh, well, thank you so much, Jen. And for anyone who has really enjoyed this episode, because I definitely have, you can go and binge on Everything is Fine after listening. Um, and I'll leave the link below and a link to pre-order. Can, can people pre-order the next book? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet but but if, they, if they follow me on social media, they, they'll, we'll figure it out together. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'll definitely be following for any news and good luck with the writing. And thank you so much for coming on.
Emma, thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.